not necessarily family-wise, but ministry-wise, just because of some of the things that the Lord has done. And he's done it, but uh, sometimes you feel the aftershocks of worth cakes as they rumble through your life. And that is why I picked a very obscure uh, passage of Scripture. Um, I try and do that when I come because I know people probably wouldn't have read this recently, thought about it recently, maybe ever heard it or memorized it. Um, so, but it's ministered and made a difference in my life lately. It's usually read, sometimes read, uh, when someone's in the hospital or has gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, it's rarely read during happy times, but I think it should be, because I think if it's really understood, it will create a deep sense of blessedness and contentment in the souls of those who know the Lord. So we're going to be in the 23rd Psalm this morning. I know it's an obscure one, but uh, the Lord has used it in my life recently, and I'll give you a, uh, an illustration why. Um, most of you know that uh, our ministry is with most of the Orthodox Jews and Hasidic Jews. However, I do uh, had a chance to witness to Muslim people this last trip to Israel, to secular Jews, to some Jews who claim to be agnostic. And our son Raleigh ministers with Rosh Christi, a uh, campus ministry, and he has given me some books to read that have helped me minister to Jewish people who had children uh, of Holocaust survivors and basically said God couldn't be there. So recently in Israel, when Kathy was getting her citizenship, um, <clears throat> we were on our last day, and for the sake of time, I'm going to cut this short, but it's a long, lengthy, lengthy process, and you have to go through the Ministry of Interior in Israel. And if any of you have heard Bibi's speech as of a week ago, you know that the Israeli intelligence is second to none. <laughs> they do things that are really, really amazing. I'm so proud of them. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you don't want to be on the, on the other side of things, so to speak. So we were in Israel, and, and the Ministry of Interior had given Kathy her citizenship, and we were there our last day. It was just the two of us. We went there on a shoestring. Someone helped us get our tickets, and um, it just couldn't have went better. And we saw the Lord literally move mountains of bureaucracy. You know, there's a scripture say, if you say to this mountain, move over there, and you have the mustard seed, etc. Well, we had to muster up the mustard seed, but we saw him move mountains, literally, in the Israeli bureaucracy. So we thought we were home free. It's our last day there. Kathy wanted to go to the wall and pray, and I wanted to have a few more conversations, so to speak, within the Jewish quarter, and um, this man was following us, and uh, we noticed him, and so we went down to get a coffee right before Kathy was going to go pray at the wall, and he followed us down there to where the coffee was. And Kathy walks up to me, and her back's to him, and she says, Y'all know what I said? Do not talk to him, yes. But because we were cautioned to be careful for a while. But if, as we go over there for two purposes, one to disciple and give people a chance to see where our faith took pace in time and space, history, but also, um, you know, if I'm going to go over there, I'm going to share what my Savior's done for me and what he's done for whoever I'm talking to, if they would accept it. So I, uh, 
have told my family, who have been uh, more than willing to give me their, their counsel, Dad, please be careful. And um, there's a lot at stake. And my answer is, yes, there is a lot at stake. People's souls are at stake. And if I'm ever given an opportunity to share the love of my Savior, I'm going to do it. So he starts talking to me, and this man is from Mia Shireen. I'm going to try and make this brief, but that's too late. Um, <laughs> Mia Shireen is the most orthodox place in Israel, and it's right across the street from the Damascus Gate on the northern side of Israel. He starts a conversation. He's not intimidating at all. He's not dressed like an Orthodox Jew. He's wearing a kippah, so he's obviously observant. And the long and short of it is, he started asking me questions about the Messiah. He said, uh, he, said you're, he said, you're Jewish, aren't you? I go, yeah. I, he said, what's your name? And I tell him, I ask him his name, and he tells me. And he said, uh, do you think a Jew should be looking for the Messiah? I said, I absolutely know the Jews should be looking for the Messiah. The Rambam says in his 13 statements of principles and faith that... Every Jew is supposed to be looking for the Messiah. He said, do you know who the Rambam was? I said, yeah. He lived in the late 1000s. He was a contemporary of Rashi. He was a famous Tzaddik, which is, a, in their words, a righteous one. So uh, there is a reason I'm telling you this story. I'm going to get to the end of it here shortly. So he says, well, do you think he's come? I said, I know he's come. Daniel 9 told us exactly when he's come. If you want to look it up, it's in Daniel 9.24. And if you look in the Orthodox Jewish Bible... Rashi's notes are there, and he figured it out, except he got the wrong person. He said it was Herod the Great. Could have been Herod the Great. Herod was an Idumean. God is writing to Daniel and his people. So I gave him a couple other verses. And at that point, I was so excited. This, this person is really interested. He wants to hear about the Messiah. He had moved ever so slowly to sit right down next to me, and he had his phone out, and he's taping me. And I just got sick inside. Now, you know how your mind works on two levels? One, you're talking to someone, but then somehow inside you can think, would I have done anything different? I've had a chance to change this situation. And you start to panic and think of all the things that could go wrong. And then I think, no, no, I wouldn't have changed a thing. And I didn't want to just walk away from him when he approached us because Kathy was with me, and I didn't want him following both of us. I had to explain that to my family later after they beat me up. So... <laughs> He said, well, he said, do you believe the Messiah's come? I said, yeah, I know he's come. He said, uh, would you believe it was Jesus? So now it's a yes or no question. I said, yeah, I absolutely know it was Jesus. That is our Messiah. Thanks a lot. And he had a smile on his face and walked off. Well, this is after months, years of praying, months of, of trying to get our citizenship. And uh, <clears throat> that was the last day there. There's a million and a half people in Israel. This man, I came to find out, was probably of a counter or anti-missionary group called Yad Lakim. They work with the Israeli government. What he did with that, I don't know. But Kathy brought up a verse out of Isaiah that says, those who, maybe one of you can help me, come against me shall not prosper. Every, any of you here? No. Anyway, there's a verse, and it's back there. <laughs> and uh, I say all this because as this is happening, I thought of this chapter, where the Lord is my shepherd, and the Lord there is capitalized. It's yud heh vav in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh, or Yehovah, and is my shepherd, and I, I thought we would go through this really quickly. Um, it's, it's, I believe, kind of encapsulates 
David's life. A few trips ago, it, it says, basically, the Lord is my shepherd, which implies we are sheep, right? Um, if you, well, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you real quick. In John 10, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful passage of our shepherd and of his ministry to us. And in verse 3, it says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, who he does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So in Israel in ancient times, there was sheep pens with different shepherds' sheep in them. And on one of our trips, I really don't, didn't know about sheep very much. Uh, one of our guides, she actually told us about sheep as we were going to look at the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem. And in case not all of you are up on a lot of information about sheep, we in the Bible, of course, are called sheep. A sheep really can't do much. Sheep are very fearful animals. Sheep cannot defend themselves against anything. They can't even camouflage themselves. They're just kind of one color. <laughs> Sometimes there's black sheep, but most of them are just kind of whitish or cream colored, and they can't do a chameleon thing. Uh, they really can't run fast, and they don't do anything. And there's no safety in numbers. More sheep just means more death, literally. <laughs> they are very habitual creatures. They will walk along the same path until when it rains, it gets gullied out and it breaks off. They will eat a field of uh, grass or pasture until they eat right down to the roots and make themselves sick. And they'll just stay there looking for more when there is no more. In fact, when your name becomes a verb, you know something's not, there's not quite right with this picture. There are fields that are known as sheeped out. Sheeped out. That means they just destroyed it. So they have to be led from pasture to, to pasture, and they will only follow their shepherd if they trust him. They're really unusual animals, and that's who we are. If you think about it, one of the first jobs anyone ever had in the scriptures, Genesis, I think it was four, Abel was a keeper of the flocks. And uh, because they needed to be kept. Well, in this chapter, it says, To him the doorkeeper opens, that's the breaker, the one who goes in and out, the real shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Sheep, uh, their eyes aren't great, and many times there's wool in front of whatever sight they have. They can't really smell really good, that's why they had to be, have to be led to pastures, so they can kind of be right there, right on top of what they need to be eating. Um, they have incredible hearing. And this amazed me when I first heard it. Sheep have incredible hearing. And if you have several different flocks within a, a, she, a sheep fold, at least in ancient times, um, from different shepherds, the shepherd of a particular flock would walk around the outside and give a call to his sheep, whatever it was. I'm sure it was kind of strange things. And his sheep would hear his voice. The other sheep wouldn't pay attention. And his sheep would start making their way to where the breaker was, the door, and they would go out. So sheep have incredible ears if they will use them, but that's about all they got. So uh, it goes on to say um, in verse 9, I am the door. This is Jesus. If anyone hears, enters through me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life, have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So when we go back to Psalm 23 and David says, the Lord is my shepherd, David, of course, was a shepherd before he was called, wasn't he? And David knew what a shepherd did. David spent a whole lot of time with God by himself before Samuel came to anoint him king in 1 Samuel 16. I think there's a class in here studying about that. And what shepherds do is they lead, they guide, they restore, and they protect. The worst, absolute worst thing you can say of a shepherd is that they lost one of their sheep or one of their sheep was, was stolen or attacked without his knowledge because that shepherd would not be a good shepherd. Fortunately, blessedly for us, our shepherd is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. He controls history. He writes history before it happens, as we see in the prophets, and then makes history comes out as he wrote it. So we have omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign shepherd. And Jesus said, of those the Father gives me, I lose nothing. Now this is an in-house message also. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces. But there's a lot of faces of, of, I haven't met yet. And so this is a message about the sheep of the Lord, not goats. And I don't mean that pejoratively. It's just that an unbeliever can't claim these things. And if you're sitting here today for the first time, um, if you go and you want to know, what would it take for the Lord to be my shepherd? It's very simple. As Todd, you know, kind of talked about, it's placing your faith in the cross of our shepherd who laid down his life for us. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up again. That was his mission in coming, literally. So as we begin this psalm, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, Some translations say, "I I shall lack for nothing. That's actually Hebraically a a better translation. Yahweh is my protector, provider, restorer, and I shall lack for nothing. Now, what do people in the Middle East who are losing their life for their faith or in North Korea or in other places in the world, when they read this, if you translated it that way, what would they say if they're in prison? Like the pastor in prison in Turkey, right? We're praying for to get out. It's on Jay Sekulow on the radio, if you're familiar with that stuff. Or people in the Middle East that have been held uh, in horrible, horrible ISIS camps or whatever. Um, Could they look at this? Could they say this? Well, when you think about life, what is it that's absolutely most important? The Bible says that our lives are but a vapor. And then there's eternity beyond that. Eternity means eternity, forever, never ending, never stopping. So it's not like it took God by surprise that some of his children are really, really hurting. But it's also, since he is our high priest and went through this life, just like we have, uh, except without sin, it's not like he doesn't know what we're going through either. Because he's omniscient, because he's uh, sovereign, because he's the God-man, he knows everything we're feeling, he knows what it feels like to feel it, and he went through far, far, far worse than we will ever go through. So when it says we shall lack for nothing, it means that everything we need that's important and profound and eternal, he gives us. That's an absolute promise. 
And as you get older in this life, and you grow up and you have families and children and grandchildren, and you see life for a while, you understand that that's one of the dearest things that God could ever tell us. What you really need in this life, what is most important to you, whether you know it or not, you have. You have my love. You have my forgiveness, if you should choose to accept it. You have eternal life, my life. Everybody has eternal life. But God says he will give you his life. Give me his life. So the things that are most important, we will not lack. Then it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, this is David talking, but David's talking as a sheep. His shepherd makes him lie down in green pastures. Sheep, again, are very fearful. If sheep are afraid, they won't lie down. If the sheep won't lie down, they won't rest. If they won't rest, they're stressed out. So it's possible, I guess, they could go through their entire sheep life stressed out. Well, guess what? The Bible calls us sheep. Does anybody want to go through their entire life stressed out? I don't. I do sometimes, and I realize, Lord, why am I stressed? Well, because you're not trusting me. And you would think, being in the ministry for a while and working with, with Israel and others and spending time in God's word, um, Levi and I sat down and ate lunch. Levi's my son, my middle son. About a year and a half ago, he said, Dad, you've been studying and reading and walking with the Lord uh, for a long time. How much of the Bible do you think you know? I thought it's a weird question. So I stopped and thought, I go, I bet I'm up to 6 or 7% now. He said, in 40 years? I said, yeah, that may be pushing it, but close to that, if, if, if not there. And I believe that, because those of you in this church who, excuse me, who teach know that you can teach a book once and teach it five years later, and it's almost like, what did I learn? I see so many things. It's layered, right? Well, it's like the Lord saying to me, you know, you're not trusting me. That's why you're stressed out. He leads me beside quiet waters. When I read this passage, I think of David and Engedi. When we've gone to Israel, uh, Engedi is a literal place. Todd's been there, and those of you who went have been there. Um, it's where David hid out from Saul, and there's a couple caves high up on the ridge, and then there's this water coming down, and it goes by the caves and then goes down into this creek. And um, as you look up into the caves, they're, they're large, large caves. And when David was running from Saul, I've often wondered, well, how did Saul find him by the caves of Engedi? Well, there's water there. If you've been to the Judean wilderness, there's not much water there. So David and his men would have needed water. Saul knew that David would have needed water, and so Saul followed the water, and he followed David. Well, David is in Gedi, and then verse 3 says, he restores my soul. When I think of that, I think of... Uh, family hurts. I think of maybe losing a job, but I also think of spiritual warfare. And most of you in this room today are familiar with that. If you're not, you will be <laughs> at some point in your life. It's not optional. God says if we're believers, there is this thing called spiritual warfare. Satan is trying to take us out. The man in Israel, because th I've thought about this a lot. When we got home, I immediately called the, the group over there that was helping us get in. And they said, no, that's not the Ministry of Interior. You'd have known it. You'd have known it right then. 
she said that was probably Yad Lakane. That's where I, I Googled it, and the first page, it's anti-missionary group in Israel, and, and she told us that they're, she's the one that told us they work with the Israeli government. And um, I thought, so it wasn't the government that was following us, it was Satan. Satan had his people out trying to destroy and kill any efforts we would make for the sake of the gospel in Israel. And of course, one of the reasons Kathy and I are doing this, because our son Raleigh wants to go over there with his wife and four children and live. So they're using dad as the frontier person, <laughs> frontline person. But as we seek to share the gospel and disciple people, um, to think that you're gonna go through life unscathed, it's, it's just not true. We will get hurt sometimes. Things will blindside us sometimes. And, but the Lord is our shepherd. And the Lord is there to restore our soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his, his name's sake. I think uh, Roger today was talking about in class about the Lord's name. Uh, we won't go there, but in Ezekiel 30, 34 talks about how the watchmen of Israel were responsible for a certain thing. They were responsible for telling the nation that a sword is coming. A sword could be physical or, or God's judgment coming because the nation was being rebellious. The watchmen many times were prophets, and their job was to warn. If they didn't warn, uh, the blood, what happened, would be on their head. But if they did war warn the nation, then it wouldn't. Right after that chapter is the shepherds of Israel. And God verbally lambasts the shepherds of Israel because they weren't doing their job at the time. Well, what happens when... God's shepherds don't do their job and teach whoever, whatever time period you're living in, God's truth, and the people don't have a chance to respond by trusting the Lord and walking with the Lord, etc. It hurts God's name because certain peoples are called by his name. And then you get back all the way up into chapter 36, and God says to Israel, I'm doing this for my name's sake. God's name his name is attached to certain promises made both to Israel and the church. And if we believe that God reneges on his promises to Israel, what, how do we believe that God's promises to the church are going to matter? That we're forgiven, that there's a heaven, right? So these things matter. And when he says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, sheep, again, are the most habitual people, people, animals on the planet, and we are called sheep. The sheep forget... What happened to, uh, I haven't looked at these today because I can't read them, but <clears throat> to countries like Persia in the ancient world. You remember Haman? Wanted to hang Mordecai, right? Well, what happened was Haman got hanged with 11 or 10 or 11 of his sons. And countries, uh, empires like Babylon, Greece, Rome. Well, people look at that, but don't really take it into consideration. You know, they're gone. These nations are gone. And little piddle in Israel who kept on getting attacked and being dispersed and went through all this stuff, well, they're still there. So he does it for his namesake because his infinite and absolute attribute of veracity, which is truth, is attached to his promises. When God promises that he will be our shepherd and we shall lack for nothing, he's not kidding. He means it. He restores our soul. He guides us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Um, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
There is a literal valley of, of deep darkness over there. It can be, read shadow of death or deep darkness. And again, those who came with us that trip saw it. It's the only time I've ever seen it, by the way. But there's this little skinny valley. It's, it's skinny, isn't it, Todd? Skinny, some valleys aren't skinny, but this valley is in Israel. <clears throat> and the reason it's called the Valley of Deep Darkness is because <clears throat> in ancient times, robbers used to be up there. And because of the way the cliffs are, the valley only gets sun a little bit of the day. And I can't remember how long it was, whether it was half hour, hour, two hours, but not much. The rest of the time, everything's in shadows. And there's, you know, hiding places where cougars can hide out and attack animals or, or people, robbers and thieves can uh, hide out and attack people. And David had to travel through some of these. When, if you are a literal shepherd, you bring your animals up sometimes onto the hills and high up into the higher up into the hills or mountains during the summer, and then <clears throat> in the fall you're bringing them back down to basically a more secure place. But the trip back down is very dangerous, and the trip back down is when animals would attack the sheep or robbers would attack you. And supposedly, if a cougar, which you know hides out and blends in with the cliffs and everything, attacks a sheep. It will take it and carry it away, and it will eat it alive. Well, of course it will eat it alive, but it, the sheep will be standing up while a, a cougar or a mountain lion is attacking it and killing it. It won't even make a sound. So these things were for real, and I believe as David is thinking about these things, he's thinking about when he led his sheep up and led them down. Remember, I, I guess it's First Samuel, right before... Yeah, in the chapter on Goliath, Saul thinks he's got, you know, he's got to wear this armor, and David says, no, it's too heavy, I can't move. That's a different version than you've ever read, but it's similar. Um, <clears throat> and he says, you know, when a, when a lion and a bear uh, attacked and grabbed my father's sheep, I went after it and I killed it. So I think of this, and I think of just some of the things that David has, has been through when God was molding him as a king. And as he's molding him as a king, God had, you know, he, he had a meteoric rise to fame. And if you're studying the book, it says, you know, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, David has tens of thousands. He was a folk hero. And after he kills Goliath, you know, they're selling Davidic slingshots at the mall. And all the kids are wanting his autograph. And, but right after that, what, what does God do? God breaks him down. And God, God starts ripping away everything in David's life that gives him comfort and security, starting with he takes him from his king. Saul throws a spear at him, tries to kill him. And Saul wasn't a wimp. And then he takes him from his wife, from his best friend, Yonatan, from the high priest, Abimelech. I think that was his name. <laughs> Don't quote me there. But, uh, he, and then he flees to another nation. And piece by piece by piece, he's breaking David down. So what does he have left? The Lord. He still has his Lord and he still has his shepherd forever. And so as David is writing this psalm, I think he's thinking back to all the different times in his life that his shepherd came. Because when it says, he prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you could do a whole lot with that. But you know, when you're eating, you're not real aware of your surroundings. You're very vulnerable. So when David is running from Saul, he has to, you know, he has to eat and he has to hunt and he has to be, 
he's with his men after a while, and they're kind of vulnerable, but he's at ease. And then it also has to do with basically, you shall prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The enemies of unrighteousness will eventually lose. God's people are winners. Ultimately, if you know the Lord, you are a winner. No matter what happens to us in this life, we shall in the end lack for nothing. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows, and then this is my favorite part of the whole thing. And we'll wrap it up. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. I doubt if there's very many people in this room who haven't read this verse. Well, I looked it up. The goodness is tova chesed. Chesed, of course, is God's faithful, covenantal, loyal love. You've probably heard that. But I don't know if you know, it's a non-emotional love. It's not because God feels real ooey-gooey for his children, although he does love us. He loves us infinitely. He loves us passionately. He loves us absolutely and unconditionally. But it's a contractual love. Once we become God's children, he loves us because he's God, and that's it. You know, sometimes we mess up, but he still loves us. And then it says, a loving kindness, and will follow me. I looked up this word. I never had before. It's the Hebrew word is radaf. This was my favorite word in the whole psalm. It means, it ha- it's, the, it's the word picture of an animal being pursued and hunted down. If you think of a cheetah running after a gazelle or something, that's the idea of this word. God is pursuing us and coming after us uh, with goodness and mercy. You could take that for 20 years and live on it. God is running after his children and pursuing them with goodness and mercy. And David ends it by saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord Leolam forever or until the end of the age, however you want to take it. So it's a very well-known psalm, but when you really look at this from the eyes of a shepherd or from the eyes of a needy soul, from the eyes of somebody who's hurting, it's not... You know, t- times of, of passing and, and hospitalization is, the only, is not the only times we should use it. This was the first thing that came to my mind when I saw, and I'm slow about some things, I'm not the quickest person <laughs> out there, but after I saw the phone and the guy taping me, I thought, this is not, this has never happened to me before. What is going on here? I thought, Lord, you're my shepherd. Be with me right now. And he was. I didn't have to ask him. But this came to mind, and it, maybe it'll help you sometime. Um, you don't have to be in Israel to need this psalm. Father, I thank you that we have you as our shepherd. I thank you, Lord, that you are literally pursuing us with loving kindness and goodness. I thank you that as our shepherd, you lay down your life for us, proving that you are indeed the good shepherd and proving that you have only good and loving kindness with eternal perspectives uh, in mind for us. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. Your character is at stake. Your character cannot change. You say, I, the Lord God, change not. We understand that, and we know that. And we understand that you are the source of absolutes, that you are the source of love, that you are the source of truth, that you are are the source of mercy. Everything that is good, you are the source of. 
And therefore, when we read this psalm and psalms like it, help it, Lord, to change our lives and understand how much you really do love us. And you don't just love us as a church, although you do. You love us as an individual, one-person identity. To think that the creator that spoke the universe into creation, into existence, out of nothing, ex nihilo, could actually care about me, that you care about every person sitting in this room today. You care about them unconditionally. You love them. You want to pursue them with what you have to show them about how blessed and purposeful all of our lives can be. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, for what you've uh, shown us within this book we call the Bible, this book of infinite and absolute truth, this book which is literally priceless. In Jesus' name, amen.